Open your Bibles this morning, would you please, to Acts chapter 21. That was the text that we'll use for uh, our discussion through this passage this morning. Right around uh, A.D. 70, the paths of uh, two men crossed briefly in Rome. One was a man named Nero, and the others we've seen was the Apostle Paul. Nero was married at that time to a head-turning beauty. She's reported to have bathed in donkey milk, be patted down with swan feathers, and massaged with crocodile mucus. You see, Nero liked soft skin, and what Nero wanted, Nero got. In our day, paparazzi would flock to catch a glimpse of celebrities like Nero and his wife. If you ask anybody in Rome in AD 70 who would make the greatest impact on the world, who was on the right side of history, everybody would have said Nero. And everybody would have been wrong. By contrast, while Nero was busy indulging his whims and building statues to himself and declaring himself to be a god, Paul and a few like him were connecting their story to uh, what many believed at the time and even today was simply a lost cause. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. According to Jesus, that is where the action is. But when we ask what kind of action Jesus has in mind, the answer isn't immediately clear. It only gradually unfolds, and that's where Acts chapter 21 comes in. It illustrates what it means for us to be on the right side of his story. Acts chapter 21 defines what's fundamentally important to Christ using a series of words and phrases. And I'm going to point those words and phrases out to you as we read together through this passage. So follow along as I begin Acts chapter 21. Now remember that the apostle had been at the city of Ephesus and he had announced that he was headed to Jerusalem. And this is a southern journey. He's traveling from a northerly point in Europe and he's going to make his way down to Asia Minor. And from Asia Minor he's going to make his way down to the Palestinian area and eventually end up in Jerusalem where he'll be arrested and carried on to captivity. This is right after he's left the people at Ephesus, the church there. So chapter 21 verse 1. Luke says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. Now, because there are three rapid-fire things that are happening here, we get the impression that this is a smaller boat. And small boats kind of like to hug the coastline, and so wherever they could find, you know, just a, a little island or something. And so you'll find three quick stops that they make. It says, we put out to sea, and we sailed straight, straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there we went to Patera. Now, in the next verse, it looks like the Apostle Paul ch changed from this smaller boat to a larger merchant vessel, which was headed down toward Phoenicia. So, verse 2, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board, and set sail. This was going to be a 400-mile trip. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo, and we sought out the disciples. Now, I want you, do you mark in your Bibles? This is one of those phrases we're going to come back and talk about in a second. The disciples. Notice that phrase there. We sought out 
the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, now there's the second phrase I want you to make a note of, if you mark your Bibles or just maybe a mental note. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on Jerusalem. Now this is an interesting phrase here. It kind of gives the impression that the Apostle Paul is being led by the Spirit, and now the Spirit is telling this group of disciples that he's not supposed to listen, but that's not really what this verse is saying. The Spirit has spoken to Paul and to others that he's to make this journey, but these disciples take that occasion to say to him, Oh, Paul, don't do this. Now, in spite of what the Spirit was telling these people, they so loved him, they did not want him to obey the Spirit. On the occasion when the Spirit spoke, they took that occasion to urge the Apostle Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. That's how this translation works out. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. Now here's the next phrase I want you to notice. All of them, including wives and children. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to, and here's the next phrase, we knelt to pray. We knelt to pray. Make a note of that word. And after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted our brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Now, here's a cluster of terms I want you to notice because there's a multiplicity of of gifts that are going to be mentioned. So Philip is an evangelist. We remember him from an earlier time in the book of Acts. He was also one of the seven, one of those first chosen to be deacons in the church. But he's an evangelist. Now, Philip has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And I want you to notice that expression, prophesied. So we have an evangelist, and we have four daughters who have a gift, a spiritual gift of prophecy. And then verse 10, and we had been there a number of days, another prophet, a prophet named Agabus, came down from Jerusalem. So there's two sets of gifts that are called prophecy, prophesying. There's one evangelist. And then verse 11, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. And of course, Paul is an apostle. So you have a cluster of gifts there. And I just want you to notice that cluster because we're going to come back and talk about that. And they tied his, uh, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and his feet, and with it said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now that's where the prophecy ends. The prophet Agabus doesn't tell him to go any further. Doesn't tell him, you know, to stop his journey. The prophet Agabus just says, this is what's going to happen. If you go any further, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be bound, you're going to be turned over to the Romans. But just like on the earlier occasion, when the Spirit spoke, the people responded not exactly in line with what the Spirit was saying. Look at verse 12. When we heard this, Luke includes himself among those people. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So there's this distinction between what the Spirit wants Paul to do and what the people are desiring that he do. But I want you to underline or note that word pleaded. We're going to come back and take a look at that word as well. Pleaded with Paul. Then Paul answered in verse 13, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready. Note that phrase. I am ready. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, 
the Lord's will be done. And that's the last phrase I want you to notice. The Lord's will be done. After this, we started out on our way up to Jerusalem. Now remember the point of this passage. This passage is unfolding for us where the action is. We're trying to define what it means to be on Jesus' side of history. And these various phrases and words that I pointed out for you give us an indication of what it means. And so let's just take a look at them. Let's just go real quickly through them one by one. The first thing it means to be where the action is is to be a part of a group known as disciples. Now, that's a word that appears something like 250 times in the New Testament. It's one of those really important words. But very few people take the time to stop and define it. And sometimes when we do, you know, we kind of go over the top with it. It's almost like we have two tiers, two classes uh, of, of Christians in some people's mind. There is a group that's called disciples. That's that elite core of Green Beret spiritual giants that memorize billions and billions and billions of verses and, you know, pray something like nine hours out of every 24-hour day. That's the way people, some, some people think about discipleship. And they say, well, if that's what it means to be a disciple... I could never be one of those. I'm just an ordinary, plain, old Christian. So don't include me among the group of disciples. Now, if that's your view of discipleship, I have to tell you, biblically, that's a wrong view. Because all in the world, the word disciple means is something like the word we use today, an apprentice. A disciple is simply someone who has made that decision to follow Jesus in order to become like him. And if we want to know what does it mean to become like him, we've got phrases in the New Testament, passages like Galatians that say, well, it's like the fruit of the Spirit. You're developing love, you're developing joy, you're, you're developing peace, you're developing patience, you're developing all of those fruit of the Spirit that are mentioned in Galatians. That's what it means to be like Jesus. To be an apprentice means you make a start and you grow in that direction. It's not something weird or wild or spooky. It's not that you dress differently. It's not that you act differently. It's not that you separate yourself out in some strange way and you know wear you know, your hair in a different style. That's not what it means to be a disciple. A disciple just means that from the inside out, you're being transformed to become more and more like Jesus. In one of the ABFs I'm teaching, uh, we're studying some uh, uh, men in church history. And one of my favorite men is, uh, is a man named Diognetus. And he has this quote that I want to show you here. I think he caught it. I think he got the essence of this whole discipleship deal. He said, Christians do not inhabit separate cities or follow some outlandish way of life. And yet there is something extraordinary about them. They live in the flesh. But they're not governed by their flesh. They're attacked and persecuted. But a blessing is their answer to abuse. They live in poverty, many of them we could say. But they enrich many with their lives. The Christian is to the world, and this is a famous phrase, the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body, yet distinct from it, 
So Christians are found in all the cities of the world, but they cannot be identified with the world. That's what we mean when we say disciple. We're that separate people, that people that have begun to move away from the world and toward Jesus. In a word, Christians are disciples. And, and maybe the best way to flesh out what we mean by disciples is to take a look at the rest of the pen portraits that we're going to have here. But before we do that, let me just stop to remind you that Jesus, to be on his side of history, remember that Jesus is, to, is a seeking to build a community of people the Bible calls disciples. And the one thing that characterizes us all is our willingness to follow him in order to be like him. Do you see that there? Disciples. Now that second phrase is also going to help us to to know where the action is, the kind of thing Jesus is doing in this world. And it's simply the phrase, through the Spirit. Dependence on the Holy Spirit is one of the marks of the kind of life that Jesus is touching. I have a book in my library entitled The Saints Among Us. Uh, It's a... um, research book. It was done by George Gallup and a friend of his known as Timothy Jones. And they observed uh, in their research that there's, this, this, there's an enormous amount of piety in the United States. They say statements like, I seek God's will through prayer. By the way, 88% of Americans say they pray regularly. Statements like, I believe that God loves me even though I may not always obey him. Statements like, I receive comfort and support from my religious belief. Statements like those are common in America. Many people believe them. People that aren't evangelical in any sense of the word. People believe that essentially they're very spiritual in our culture. People believe that. But what Gallup and and Jones discovered was that there was something that distinguishes the vast majority of this saintly group from what we would call the biblical saintly group. He says the saints, however, that we surveyed that would be known as evangelicals manifest a measurably different understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, it was that phrase, measurably different, that caught my attention. Measurably different. How do you measure the Holy Spirit? How do you measure what the Holy Spirit is doing? I remember hearing a sermon a number of years ago where somebody challenged the congregation and said, you know, if the Holy Spirit were taken from us, we wouldn't even recognize it. Oh? Well, how would we know whether the Spirit is present with us or whether the Spirit has been taken from us? How would we, how do you measure something like the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? Well, I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, A good place to start, there are a number of places in the Bible, but have you ever read through John 13, 14, 15, and 16? Uh, That's sort of a a compendium on the works of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to take you all through that whole passage, but let me point you to two or three statements that are made there that are things that can be measured in churches to know whether or not the Holy Spirit is at work. First of all, there's this statement. Jesus says, He, referring to the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things. In other words, if you remove the Holy Spirit from the presence of the church, everything I'm doing this morning, none of it would make sense to you. 
you wouldn't be able to understand spiritual realities. You'd walk in here, and I'd be saying this, and you'd say, oh, that all sounded like a pretty neat thing, and, you know, the speaker seemed okay, and, you know, but I just don't get it. I don't, it's, it doesn't, it's not registering with me. I don't have a clue what this meant. On the other hand, when you begin to hear the scriptures expounded by Pastor Rick or Pastor Jason or me or an ABF teacher, and all of a sudden you say, aha, I get it. Every time that happens, that's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. That's a way to measure it. Not everybody has that. Not everybody gets it. Not everybody can read their Bible or hear a sermon with understanding. That's a way of measuring. Jesus said a second thing in John. He said in chapter 15, He will testify about me. Now, in another place, uh, the New Testament says, We couldn't declare Jesus as Lord if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. That's a part of what's being said here. We sang some wonderful songs this morning, and I was watching it as you engaged. You know, you weren't just engaging with Lauren and the worship team. You were engaging with the Lord, weren't you? You were saying, Lord, I love you. Lord, you're my Lord. You couldn't do that unless the Holy Spirit were at work in your life. Take the Holy Spirit out of churches, and churches can't say that and mean it. That's a measurable difference. Or one third and final one I'll put up here. He will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment, uh, the Gospel of John says, Jesus says there. Have you ever witnessed to someone, and in sharing the Gospel with them, the light starts to go on, and, and they make a profession of faith? Do you realize that you could not do that? That people couldn't come to know the Lord if the Holy Spirit were taken from the church? So, when Jesus is building his church, he's building disciples, people who want to be like him, but he's building disciples who are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. When Jesus builds his church, his mortar is the Holy Spirit, and there will always be spiritual knowledge, and there will be devotion to Christ, and there will be effective and powerful witness. That's a way we can measure that the Spirit is at work. There's a third thing in this passage uh, that explains to us where the action is. Uh, It's this uh, phrase, uh, all of them, including their wives and children. The Bible is very down to earth. It's not trying to make celibates out of us. It's not trying to make monks or uh, separate people out of us. It's telling us to engage in real life. It's telling us to connect up. Several years ago, uh, Steven Spielberg introduced us to the postmodern suburban family. Remember? It was in that movie, E.T. I don't know if you remember E.T., but in that movie, there was a broken home. You never saw the father in that home. It was a mom attempting to raise children by herself. A mother left to care for three small children. That's the postmodern reality, isn't it? In that family, there were children practicing lewd behavior and using vulgar language, sometimes with no notion of what they were doing or what they were saying. That's the postmodern home, isn't it? Kids growing up with little, you know, uh, oversight and doing and saying things that uh, just, you know, they, they have no idea, no clue what it's about. 
ineffective, practically invisible parents. Did you notice that when they brought the outside adults in, they were always nameless and headless and faceless and it was all about the kids it was all about the children the adults were an invisible presence just as they are for many children today that's the postmodern home isn't it and all this was painted against a backdrop of incredible material prosperity i mean they had everything they had every gizmo and every gadget and everything they could have wanted. They had it all this incredible. You know, that is one side of reality. It's a part of the reality that we live in every single day. But I'm here to tell you that there's another reality, and that's what's being described here. The reality of the, of the life of a disciple. Just tell you a story about a man whose name is John Fafinski. Uh, It's the story told by his sister-in-law, Laura. She says that one morning, John uh, took a call that came for her. You know how you do sometimes when you're you're inconvenienced or you don't want to hear the caller on the other end. She said, tell him I'm not here. And he did. Then he came back later and he told Laura how badly he felt for having lied on the telephone. Now, Laura says, you know, I wasn't in the habit of lying, and I guess I didn't consider a little white lie that big a deal. But he told me he felt it was necessary for him to have to confess this to the Lord, and that he also needed to come to me and to confess to me that he had done something that was wrong. You know, she said, I recognize that John was operating with a level of integrity that was at a different plane than mine. And as I began to watch John, she said, I began to notice that there were other things going on in his life as well. For one thing, I had never seen a man more devoted to his wife. He actually loved her. And when I saw their relationship, I often thought, I wish I had what they had. And somewhere, she says, deep in the back of my mind, I knew instinctively that the reason they were different is because not that they were better people, but because they had a special relationship with the Lord. Now, that's what is being described here. When the Apostle Paul went from city to city and he met disciples and he met disciples that were in marriage relationships and they had children, they're not perfect people. Far from it. None of us are perfect people. But we're in this thing to follow Jesus and become more and more like him. And in that process of growing toward him in these family relationships, people who don't know Jesus look in from the outside and see things that we aren't even aware of that the Spirit is producing in us that actually convict them, that actually challenge them, that actually make them think, I wish I had what they have. That's a part of what it means to be on the right side of history. Meaningful family life. Now notice that next phrase, they knelt in prayer. Now, You've you got to know that the first century world was very religious. I mean, they had a God for everything. But they weren't noted for their prayer lives. And they especially weren't noted for kneeling in prayer. Typically, when you prayed in Paul's day, you stood and you prayed to the God. Now, here's a group of people at the beach seeing the Apostle Paul and his party off. And they're already so committed to one another that they kneel on the beach. What a strange, strange thing for a group of people to do. They kneel on the beach and they pray. Some time ago I read an article on prayer. 
reported a 10-month computer study involving nearly 400 patients. It was conducted by a cardiologist. His name was Dr. Randolph Bird, and he had divided this group into, into two groups, actually. One group of patients was the prayed-for group, and the other group of patients was the not-prayed-for group. Now, neither group knew which group they were in. They didn't know whether they were being prayed for or not. The prayed-for group, however, Dr. Bird discovered, were five times less likely to require antibiotics, he says. They were two and a half times less likely to suffer congestive heart failure than the not-prayed-for group. And he says, and they were all less likely to suffer cardiac arrest. I thought, well, isn't that, isn't that nice? Now, we've got to be real careful how far to push that. I mean, there are a lot of things that go on in the world today. Remember, we're a very spiritual culture in the name of prayer that isn't actually Christian prayer. So we don't want to put too much emphasis on that. In fact, for me, perhaps the most, impracti- the most uh, pra- important thing uh, about this report was the concluding story of one of the men in the prayed-for group who was dying. The day before his death, Dr. Bird said, I sat at his bedside with his wife and children. He knew he had very little time left, and he chose his words very carefully, speaking in a hoarse whisper. Although he was not a religious person, he said, he told us that recently he had begun to pray. What do you pray for? I asked him. For? It isn't that I pray for anything, he asked. Prayer is simply something that reminds me that I'm not in this alone. I like that. The church Christ builds is the not alone church. The not alone church. We pray, not just because we want to get something. Now we do, and God answers prayer, and he tells us to ask for things. But we pray not just because we want something from God. But Christian disciples, as they grow in prayer, pray because they know they have a God. They know he loves them. And they know he cares what happens in their life. The right side of history is to join that group of disciples. Pray. Now remember when we went through this whole list in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 with all these divergent spiritual gifts, and I pointed out that one was an evangelist. That's only two, it's only mentioned two or three times in the New Testament, that particular spiritual gift, which is kind of surprising to me because we have such an emphasis upon evangelism today. But it's also interesting to me that another gift that's mentioned here is this gift of prophecy to a couple of young unmarried daughters. Now, the thing you need to know about Paul's culture is that in Paul's culture, if you were a woman, you were a second-class citizen, and if you were unmarried, you were virtually not a citizen at all. So what the Apostle Paul is doing here, also remember that the gift of prophecy is one of the most sought-after gifts in the New Testament. Paul says, I'd rather you have the gift of prophecy than almost anything else, he says in 1 Corinthians. So what he's doing here is he's telling that here are these nobodies, these second-class citizens, that God has blessed with this really, really important gift. In fact, he spells out a whole variety of gifts. And isn't that the way it is in the body of Christ? The people that you least expect it show up sometimes at having the best contribution to make because God has given them the spiritual gift or a talent or 
just the right words to say at the right time. And some of the people that you expect the most out of, well, they don't really contribute as much as we might expect because they don't have the, that powerful gift that someone else... And yet it all balances out so that God keeps us humble. He keeps us dependent upon one another. He makes the body of Christ work. That's this whole point. We have these different gifts that matter. Greg Ogden is a writer who... Uh, writes a lot about discipleship and spiritual gifts and the like. And in one of his books, tells the story of a woman who prayed, who was angry with her pastor because she had been in the hospital for seven days without a visit from him. And so the pastor investigated and discovered that she had actually received an average of four visits per day from members of the congregation. So he made a phone call after she got home, and he said, Hello, Mrs. White, how are you feeling? And she said, Okay, now. Well, I understand that you've been in the hospital, the pastor says. Well, it's a little late. A little late for what? The pastor asked. Well, I was there seven days, and nobody came. And see, the point is, in her mind, if the special people didn't show, nobody showed. And so Ogden makes the point that in the church that Christ built, for the church to reach its full promise, God's people must receive ministry from each one, from one another, as genuine. It cannot be seen as secondary or second-rate simply because the pastor or a person from the ministry staff isn't present. Now, I'm not scolding or I'm not telling you that there's anything wrong in our church or that we feel under any special burden from people. That's not the point of this illustration here today. I just want to make the, the point that it's another important result that marks the church when you discover that there are multitudes of people who have discovered their gifts, they're exercising their gifts, and they're affirming one another's gifts in the body of Christ as things that really matter. That's being on the right side of history. Now, the sixth thing I see here is in this phrase uh, down here in verses 10 and 11. It says where uh, they were actually pleading with the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 12. That's where I want us to focus. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded. Now, you know that word. You just don't know that you know that word. There's a really special word in the New Testament for the Holy Spirit. He's called the paraclete. The paraclete, the comforter who comes alongside of us, guess what this word is? This is the word for paraclete. It's a nurse's term. Uh, it's one of those words that talks about uh, caring and encouraging and helping and supporting anybody, whatever need they have. So this, this body of Christ, this group of disciples, these people on the right side of history are, are simply marked by the ability to show concern for one another. Earlier I mentioned the saints among us by Gallup and Jones. Well, here's another uh, observation from their research. They say the benefit of so to society of the saints among us must be enormous. Think about it. The group that scored the highest on the spiritual commitment scale also scored the highest on this statement. I spend a good deal of time helping people with their physical, emotional, or other kinds of needs. In other words, the more spiritual people rated themselves in a biblical sense, the more involved they were in other people's lives, physically 
and emotionally and with whatever the needs were. He says, on the other hand, the absence of spiritual commitment rated less people less likely to show commitment and compassion on the scale. The more spiritual you were, the more involved you were in lives of other people and doing things. The less spiritual you were, the less likely you were to be involved and you were withdrawn and, 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 and moved away from society. So caring is the sixth mark of the church that Christ built. And then in verse 13, there's this seventh mark. And Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready. Not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was not only willing to suffer, he was glad to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that attitude, that's been a common attitude of the Christian body throughout all of church history. As I was thinking about it, the example that came quickly to my mind was the story of a pastor during the Protestant Reformation in England who was preaching just like I am on one fine day and and he made this statement to his congregation. He said, now listen, this is old English. Although to lose life and goods or friends for the gospel's sake seem a bitter thing, yet in that our master tells us it is wholesome, let us with good cheer take up the cup of his hand and drink it merrily. If the cup seem unpleasant, let us put some sugar therein. I mean an ounce of Christ's affliction, which he suffered for us. If we call this to mind, he says, surely we cannot loathe our medicine, but wink and drink it lustily. Well, you'll recognize that came from the 15th, 16th century. And I thought to myself, nice sounding words, huh? That's the kind of thing preachers like to say from the pulpit, easily spoken from this kind of a shelter. Right? Right? I mean, that's the kind of thing preachers just do. But then on June 30th, 1555, this preacher, his name was John Bradford, was arrested for his faith. The next day, as he was tied to a stake and the fire was set and built around him, he turned to the young believer that was being burnt alive beside him, and he said, Be of good cheer, brother. We shall have a merry supper with our Lord in heaven this night. It's no wonder that true Christianity has made such an impact and continues to impact our world today. I like the way George Bernard Shaw puts it. George Bernard Shaw says, This is the true joy in life. The being used for a purpose we recognize as a mighty one. The being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making us happy. Do you see the difference there? you see the difference there? Christians are willing to suffer and to sacrifice for the sake of Christ. And then the last point that I'll make here is actually in verse 14. It says, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. And I guess there was probably a certain sort of resignation. Well, Paul, you're a hard-headed guy. We can't convince you. The Lord's will be done. But on the other hand, I think there's something serious going on here. They recognize that when we've made a decision following our Lord, that ultimately the most important thing we can say is the Lord's 
will be done. That's a mark of the Christian in this life. One final quote by Robert Wilkin. It kind of summarizes. I like this. Whatever their varied lives and patterns, Christians, like a plant that bends and twists itself to receive the sun. Now, can you picture that? You ever had a big sunflower growing in your backyard, and sometimes it kind of grows up, and yeah, you just almost see it bending and twisting to receive the sun. Follow, we follow the course of God just like that, always turning to the light that is the source of our life, submitting to God's will. There you have it, the church that Christ is building. That's where the action is, according to the New Testament. Are you looking for a life that counts this morning? And here's how the Bible says you should invest your life. You should invest it in being and making disciples who are dependent on the Holy Spirit, involved in meaningful family life and prayer, exercising gifts that differ, showing genuine concern, along with a willingness to suffer and sacrifice for Christ joyfully, and all in submission to will of God. According to the Bible, that's the right side of history because it's his story. And what the Bible teaches and what Christians believe is that every other kind of life, well, it just comes up short. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we want to be disciples. We want to be people that follow you on the right side of history. We ask for grace to be able to do that this day. In Jesus' name, amen.